Hey, welcome to bonus episode three of the podcast, Never To Be Seen Again. So, as you may know, I covered New York in episode 13, and at the end of that episode, I told you that it came with a bonus episode. So, here it is. In this bonus episode, I'm going to tell you about the unsolved disappearances of two couples in New York. For both of the cases I'm covering, I've found more information about the females than the males, um, so you're going to notice that there is more information in regards to the female parts of these couples than there is in the males. Um, but let's just get into it. So I'll begin with the disappearance of Camden and Sylvia and Michael Sullivan. As always, I'll give you the description before I tell you the story. I think it helps you visualize them. So Camden is case number 2068DFNY in the Doe Network and case number MP154 in NamUs. She is a white female born on July 28th of 1962. She was 36 at the time of her disappearance and she would be 58 now. She has black hair and brown eyes. She stood between 5'4 and 5'7 and weighed 125 pounds. She might have been wearing a black jacket with a bright colored stripe on the front at the time of her disappearance. Camden also wore glasses with dark colored frames. Um, Camden is also known as Cammy, so that's how I will refer to her from now on. Michael Sullivan is case number 2167DMNY in the Doe Network and case number MP753 in NamUs. Both Michael and Cammie have Charlie Project profiles that are linked. So Michael is a white male born on March 3rd of 1943. He was 54 at the time of his disappearance and he would be 77 now. Uh, Michael has gray hair and blue eyes. He stood at 5 foot 7 and 135 pounds. It is only known that he, like Cammie, were wearing sneakers at the time of their disappearance, but the brand, the color, or any of the description of those sneakers is not known. So Cammie was originally from Hyannisport, uh, Massachusetts. She left her mother's home after uh, graduating high school and she headed to the Big Apple. She found a job there working for a real estate office. She and her boyfriend Michael moved into a $300 a month rent-stabilized loft on the fifth floor of 76 Pearl Street near Manhattan's Lower Tip. Michael was an actor who worked at an art gallery. Cammie and Michael had been together for about six years by 1997. Their landlord, Robert Rodriguez, ran a locksmith shop on the ground floor of that apartment building, but he didn't live in the building him itself. At the beginning of every winter, the tenants in the building would complain that Rodriguez would wait too long to turn on the heating system. Rodriguez was also trying to increase the rent to $3,000 a month, 10 times what they already paid. So on November 7th of 1997, Cammie handed Rodriguez a petition signed by all the tenants in the building that threatened a rent strike if he didn't turn on the heating. 
Uh, later that evening, Cammy and Michael decided to go for a jog. They were last seen in the vicinity of Pearl Street and Hanover Square, and they have never been seen again. In the week that followed, neighbors and friends um, grew worried about the couple's whereabouts, and eventually one of Cammie's co-workers called their family members. After Cammie's mom, Lori, wasn't able to reach her daughter, she decided to go to the couple's apartment. Uh, one of the neighbors actually let Lori in. Inside the apartment, there were no signs of foul play, and it appeared that Cammie and Michael did not plan to leave for long. Their glasses, money, passports, wallets, and a movie that they had just rented was still in the apartment. Their running shoes and one set of keys were the only things missing. So, of course, police are contacted and missing persons reports are filed uh, for both Cammie and Michael. Investigators contact Rodriguez, the landlord, who was at home in Orange County at the time. And at this point in the investigation, Rodriguez was cooperative and went so far as to provide police access to the entire apartment building um, for their investigation. A couple of days later, though, investigators found out about that feud Rodriguez was having with the tenants. They learned about how Rodriguez wanted to increase the rent and how he was refusing to turn on the heat unless the tenants agreed to the increase. So investigators tried to call Rodriguez for an interview. And when they called, Rodriguez's family told investigators that he had left about 12 hours earlier to head to Manhattan to meet with authorities. But obviously, he hadn't. The family refused to let authorities search Rodriguez's property. Um, so police decided to use an infrared device from a helicopter in an attempt to identify any bodies on the property or anything suspicious that would help them uh, get a search warrant. But this attempt was unsuccessful. Eventually, Rodriguez's car was found. It was in a parking lot about half an hour from the uh, building. Rodriguez's attorney refused to allow authorities to search it, uh, though. So investigators theorized that Rodriguez uh, may have killed the couple and then dumped the bodies into the Hudson River. The river was searched, but nothing was found. Eventually, police also tore up the flooring in the loft and brought in cadaver dogs. All of this proved fruitless as well, though. Two weeks after Rodriguez disappeared, he suddenly reappeared, but now it was a little different. He had hired an attorney and he was refusing to cooperate with the investigation. Investigators have never been able to tie Rodriguez to the disappearance of Cammie and Michael with any physical evidence. But there is more to know about Rodriguez. You see, he was eventually arrested later in 1997 on unrelated larceny, tax fraud, and credit card charges, um, and he admitted to stealing the identity of a Newburgh apartment manager named Alan Rodriguez. Uh, there weren't, they weren't related. Um, Alan Rodriguez had died in 1994. He pled guilty on those charges and was sentenced to two to six years in prison. He was set to be released in August of 2002, 
but just before his release date, two years were added to his sentence. You see, the New York Parole Board deemed him intentionally deceitful in the disappearance of a gun cache from his property. He was released from prison in 2004, though, and he moved to East Harlem. Um, his wife actually divorced him while he was in prison. Interestingly, though, um, Rodriguez is connected to another missing persons case. A gentleman by the name of David King was a locksmith working at Rodriguez's shop. David King was a, a co-defendant in a $13 million civil lawsuit with Rodriguez in 1991. Rodriguez and King had been charged with uh, plotting to steal computer software, business records, and customers from a rival fire alarm company. Around that time, though, King and Rodriguez had uh, gotten into an argument and King disappeared. King left behind three children and a wife. Towards the end of the 1990s, authorities ordered the exhumation of a body believed to be King's. It is unknown why, but the King family refused to provide a blood sample for DNA testing and, as a result, it is still unknown if that exhumed body was King's. So Rodriguez, to this day, still denies any involvement in Cammie and Michael's disappearance. Of course, he won't speak to anyone but his attorney, though. Cammie's mother uh, continued to pay the rent for the couple's apartment after their disappearance. Unfortunately, though, 76 Pearl Street was sold to another landlord after Rodriguez's arrest. The new landlord immediately raised the rent, and Cammie's mother was forced to give up the loft. The biggest theory in this case is that Rodriguez believed he could receive the desired rent from other prospective tenants, and he murdered Cammie and Michael so they would no longer be a problem. The thought is that he dumped the couple in a body of water somewhere in the New York uh, area afterwards. Of course, there is no evidence to support this theory, though. Maybe Cammie and Michael were not the victims of Rodriguez at all. Um, maybe it was someone completely unknown to this case thus far and someone random. I don't think that they just ran off together, though. There are no reported sightings of them after the date of their disappearance, and their credit cards and social security numbers haven't been used since. Um, there was also no reason for them to run off. But unfortunately, that's all I have uh, about this case. I do want to tell you about David King before I end this story and move on to the next one because he is still considered missing. So David King is case number 389DMNY in the Doe Network and case number MP10332 in NamUs. He also has a Charlie Project profile. He is an African-American male with black hair and brown eyes. He was born on October 17th of 1961 and was 31 at the time of his disappearance in 1991. He would be 58 now. He stood at 6 foot 1 and weighed 175 pounds and he was reported missing on July 1st of 1991 and he was last seen leaving his Brooklyn home to go to work. 
So if you know anything about the disappearance of Camden and Sul uh, Sylvia, Michael Sullivan, or David King, you can contact the New York Police Department to report your information. Now on to the next case. This case is older and it'll take you back to a time that was filled with love and peace. And love is exactly what Mitchell, Fred Weiser, and Bonita Mara Bickwit found in each other. Mitchell Weiser is case number 2DMNY in the Doe Network and MP4 in NamUs. His NCMEC number is, six, is 781648 and he has a Charlie Project profile. Mitchell is a white male born on November 23rd of 1956 and he was the tender age of 16 at the time of his disappearance. He would be 63 now. He has brown hair and hazel eyes and at the time of his disappearance he stood at 5 foot 7 and 140 pounds. Mitchell wore gold rimmed metal glasses. He also had shoulder length hair that he parted in the middle and would pull back into a ponytail. He has a scar on his lower lip and his upper front teeth are discolored. He goes by Mitch and that is how I will refer to him from now on. His lovely counterpart is Bonita Mara Bickwit. She is case number 3DFNY in the Doe Network and case number MP7081 in NamUs. Her NCMEC number is 781647, and she too has a Charlie Project profile. Their accounts are linked where it's applicable. Bonita is a white female with brown hair and brown eyes. Uh, she was born on January 28th of 1958, and she was only 15 at the time of her disappearance. She would be 62 now. She goes by Bonnie, so that's how I will refer to her from now on. Both teens um, were said to be wearing t-shirts and jeans the last time that they were seen, but the color or details of their clothing are not provided. It is believed that Mitch may have been carrying a gray and olive green plaid flannel shirt, but that is unconfirmed. Bonnie and Mitch both came from stable, um, middle-class Jewish families. They were both intelligent teens that attended John Dewey High School, which is an alternative school in Brooklyn for gifted, high-achieving students. It does not say this, but I imagine that that is where uh, Bonnie and Mitch met. Mitch lived in Midwood, and Bonnie lived in Borough Park. 16-year-old Mitch was a photographer's assistant in Brooklyn, and 15-year-old Bonnie was working as a mother's helper at Camp Wellmet in Neuroburg, New York. Uh, what most people didn't know before their disappearance is that Bonnie and Mitch had secretly exchanged wedding rings earlier in the summer of 1973. Bonnie and Mitch were together for over a year at the time of their disappearance. Before their disappearance, there were some things that happened that seemed a little odd. So Bonnie was staying at Camp Wellmet where she worked during the summer of 1973. The week before they went missing, Bonnie sneaked away from the camp and went home one day. 
she took $80 uh, from the house, which she had been saving for a new bicycle. Her family wasn't home at the time, but her neighbor saw her there. She was also having some issues with the family she was working for. On July uh, 27th of 73, she showed up to work and asked them for the night off. They refused, and of course Bonnie was angry and quit right then and there. She told them that she would be back at some time, some time later to collect her clothes and her paycheck. Mitch uh, was having issues of his own. Uh, Mitch was a senior and was set to graduate in January of 74, just a few months away. He was a little upset though because he was worried about not being able to attend the college he wanted. His parents had told Mitch that they could they could not afford the out-of-town uh, college he wanted to attend and that he would most likely have to attend a school closer to home. But uh, besides that, Mitch was looking forward to his driving test that was coming up in a few weeks. Mitch and Bonnie had plans to attend a concert festival called Summer Jam on July 28th of 1973. And that's why Bonnie had asked for the night off. The concert was in Watkins Glen, New York, and it featured the Almond Brothers and the Grateful Dead. Watkins Glen was about 75 miles from Wellmet in Neurosburg, and the couple planned to hitchhike there. Mitch met Bonnie at Wellmet, and they set off for the concert. They had maybe $25 between the two of them but they carried backpacks, sleeping bags, and a cardboard sign that read Watkins Glen. They were last seen hitchhiking along State Route uh, 97. A truck driver who gave them a ride is the last confirmed person to have seen them. It is unknown if they ever actually reached Watkins Glen for that concert, and they have never been seen again. Over the years following um, their disappearance, their families never forgot about them. Mitch's family actually kept a phone listing in the Brooklyn telephone directory since 1973 in case Bonnie or Mitch decided to contact them. Years after their disappearance, Mitch's father accepted a collect call from someone identifying herself as Bonnie. By the time the operator was able to connect them, the caller had hung up. She did not call back, and she has never been identified. Then, something happened in 2000. So, a man by the name of Alan Smith comes forward with some information. He claimed that he, was, uh, that he saw Bonnie and Mitch drown while they were on their way back from Watkins Glen. Smith, who was 24 at the time, said he was going to the concert too and hitched a ride on a Volkswagen bus and two teenagers were also on the bus. He identified those two teens as Mitch and Bonnie. He didn't know their names at the time, but he had heard them talking about the girls' summer camp and recalled their clothing. They all stopped to cool off in a nearby river when Bonnie got into trouble in the water. He said Mitch jumped in to save her and they were both swept away by the water. 
but they were still alive when he last saw them. The guy that was driving the bus told Smith that he would call the police at the nearest gas station, but authorities have never uh, been able to confirm that that call was ever placed. So police claimed that Smith is credible, but they wondered why he did not try to rescue the drowning teens. It was hard for them to understand why Smith, who was an athletic Navy veteran, wouldn't try to help. The account is being investigated, but the story has not been confirmed yet. The driver of that bus has not been located, and Smith cannot remember the location of the river the teens allegedly drowned in. And because of that, Smith's story cannot be fully investigated. Mitch and Bonnie are still missing, and their case remains unsolved. In the years following the disappearance, their families have criticized the police uh, for what they called perfunctory investigation. The original case files have apparently been lost. Included in those lost files were the only existing copies of Mitch and Bonnie's dental records, which could have been used to identify their bodies. Authorities are now admitting that they made mistakes in the investigation. In 2000, on the 25th anniversary of their disappearance, um, the state attorney general became involved in the investigation. Their families hoped that the additional assistance would help solve the case, um, but so far, there is nothing new to report. We're coming to the 47th anniversary of Bonnie and Mitch's disappearance. Can we hope that it gets solved before it reaches 50? And I don't want to talk so much about the theories in this case as much as I want to talk about the oddities. That phone call. Was that Bonnie? Was that her killer? And Alan Smith. What took him so long to come forward? And why didn't he try to save them if his story is true? Is it too far-fetched to believe that he had something to do with their disappearance. So the family of M Mitch and Bonnie have actually created a website for their missing loved ones. And you can find that yourself online. I found it by Google searching, but the website is mitchellandbonnie.com and it pretty much gives their story. Um, I think it's... Um, almost the exact same story that I just read to you. I, I want to say this is where I got most of my information from. So I urge you to check that out. They also have pictures of them on there um, so you can see what they look like. They just look like young teens in the 70s um, in a period of time that you thought that nothing could really hurt you. Um, I'll just finish uh, finish up this case by saying if you have any information about the disappearance of Mitchell Fred Weiser or uh, Bonita Mara Bickwit, please contact the Sullivan County Sheriff's Office. So that is it. That is all I have for this bonus episode. And that completes this week's trip to New York. I had plenty to cover coming out of the Big Apple, but this week has worn me out. So, for the next regular episode, I'll probably try to take it easy, 
but you know I can still get carried away even when I don't want to. But I urge you to tune in for the next regular episode to hear more about those never to be seen again.